Okay. Okay, we are good. Never mind, restart that. Okay, I will restart. We can edit stuff on live podcast. Hello, and welcome to the In a Good Way live podcast. Hi, I am Pratik, and I'm one of the co-hosts here, along with... I'm Jacob. I'm also a host of In a Good Way. So first, we would like to tell um, and tell you guys why we started In a Good Way, because we never expected to get this many people. And first of all, we never even thought to have a live event in the first place. Pratik did. I did, that is true. So really, when we started, we were trying to figure out what we could do for this project. We wanted to do an improv comedy club, which even the mention of that with Pratik's name made some teachers laugh. (laughs) That is true. But really, we couldn't find a sponsor. They were all busy. Miss Soul wouldn't do it. (laughs) We we just figured this would be a good way to talk about random things that we're interested in, just pick different topics, and get to know people better. And I want to give a special shout out to Sonera Ledesma. Um, when we first asked her to do the stand-up club, she literally laughed at our faces. <laughs> it's quite a um, very interesting moment. But uh, the reason I did it is because in t- uh, typical critique fashion, I decided to commit to an activity that sounded like a lot of fun, um, but made me have to spend time with um, Jacob. So that was pretty... I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so Jacob has been a great co-host, um, and I wouldn't be able to do any of this without him. But um, we've come a long way when we started, so um, right now we have over 376 plays in three different countries and nine different states. Yeah, we never thought we would get this much. Um, yeah, we if, thought we'd have at least 25 states by now. <laughs> <laughs> so when we first started the podcast, our first episode reminded me of an old Texas law, um, which by typical bureaucratic standards is kind of pointless. Um, so I guess the best analogy for this is a law where two trains meet each other at a railroad crossing. And basically the law is that each shall come to a full stop and neither shall proceed until the other is gone. So basically, train couldn't go anymore. Yeah. So the podcast it kind of reminded me of that because it really had no purpose in the beginning. And it was just Jacob and I sitting around. In a, um, oh, we talked for like an hour and a half on that first one. Yeah. yeah. Just us sitting around with a microphone and a horse in Jacob's um, ranch. Well, and talking. The horse was not inside. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was there in spirit. Yes. So as we um, recorded, we learned the importance of... Really just of the delete button. Yeah. That's yeah. very important for editing these. It's really good. But also most of the de-amplify button. Oh, and the amplify button. All the buttons. Yeah. <laughs> but most importantly, our podcast found a direction with the help of these wonderful individuals. Um, and we had some really interesting and deep conversations. For example, with Madison's podcast, we talked about love and TikTok. And for those of you still wondering about Pratik's ideal first date, which is a question he dodged there, you're here. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no comment. <laughs> so, um, but actually, I would like to kind of make a tribute to someone who is not here but has supported us a long time. Um, as uh, our dear friend uh, Cedric, who would be on the ethic panel today but could not make it um, due to a an emergency, he said uh, he would say that I choose to believe that love is an arbitrary concept designed by mankind to fulfill an artificial need of belonging. So that's what I would say. Nice. <laughs> 
Critique just means he'd like to talk to you after the podcast. <laughs> Once again, I'm being attacked for introducing new ideas. <laughs> so, um, and you guys um, know what to do. So basically, um, one of the other guests that could not be here is Kyusei. Yeah, and we're going to talk about how he owes us some bagels that he promised us. But he's not even here now. We can't get them. <laughs> Yeah, um, in that episode, that was actually our most watched episode, um, and he yeah. promised us uh, bagels. He said that he loves eating bagels around midnight, so yeah. take that as you will. And who could forget those deep conversations we had with Abby in um, Ms. Kawit's closet? <laughs> <laughs> office, it looks like in closet. Yeah. And so really, we'd like to thank all of our guests, listeners, and supporters who have made our podcast fun to make, along with everyone in the audience today. But before we begin, <laughs> but before we begin, we would need to introduce some very special guests on our panels. The first off, we have our culture panel. Today we have Shabazz, Nikolai, and Hannah. We'd especially like to thank Nikolai, as he is the only person who has made memes about our podcast. <laughs> They're very good. Two good memes. And now that I think about it. That is the sole reason I said yes to the podcast, to get yeah. named. It's an honor, truly. <laughs> Positive memes. That's the tough part for critique. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and um, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our wonderful ethics panel. Um, so on that panel, we have some very ethical individuals, such as... <laughs> such as Reka, Rishith, and Rajiv. And we'd also like to introduce our two fabulous fact-checkers. We actually have three now. We oh, yeah. One. So we've got Pernif, Nikhil, and Hamza to make sure that Pratik and I don't say anything that's too wrong. <laughs> Just a little wrong. And now, without further ado... There's been a lot of ado. <laughs> well, ado to you two. Um, we would like to finally uh, officially commence our podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yeah. well, we talked about them. We yeah, talked yeah. about when they were on the podcast. Yeah. So they're part of our stars of our past uh, panel, which is... Did you forget somebody? Did you forget Rajiv? Did you forget Rajiv? Yeah. Did you forget Rajiv? No, I said Rajiv, and he had the panel. We talked about you he all. He deserves a special one. Rajiv? Yes. Rajiv, we would like to thank oh, you especially. I'll be not very concerned, but I'm going to give you a chance. <laughs> I think we all like to thank the thickest man in IV. <laughs> the absolute most attractive human being I've ever met in my adult life, which has only been for like three months now. Rajiv Swami, my life, my life. Editor. That might be I do love that delete button. <laughs> it definitely won't be amplified. <laughs> so, now to officially begin our podcast, um, we would like to introduce our first topic, which is the pros and cons of 5G. It's one more G than 4G. Yes, it is. <laughs> but that's not the only difference. Yeah, so 5G has a lot of benefits. I'm sure you guys have all heard from all the, I've uh, seen the advertisements on TV during Super Bowls, etc. 5G is a game changer. And companies want you to see it that way. It's a marketing strategy. But it also is a technological innovation. The question is whether that marketing strategy is substantiated by the technological innovation. So for example, for the pros of 5G, 
yes, it is true that 5G increases speeds of 4G by 20 to 30 times. It also does improve access um, for rural neighborhoods uh, and also just increases um, access to individuals in third world countries as well. So there's tons of potential here. But the problem is that some 5G pundits have concluded that the new network generates radio frequency uh, radiation that can da damage DNA and lead to cancer. And similarly, it can create overcrowding of yep. the frequencies. So my question um, to the really the ethics panel here is, do you guys think that these concerns are substantiated? Do you guys think we should wait a couple years before 5G is rolled out? Right. So I think the pros outweigh the cons here because it's inevitable that our data is going to be stored somewhere. And one of the big concerns with 5G is that, is that good? all right. One of the big concerns with 5G is that people's information is connected even more. But what a lot of people don't know is that every time you install an app or you register an account, your information goes somewhere. It's inevitable. So you might as well accept it for faster internet. And when you have faster internet and faster communications, you can send information faster. Plus, in a lot of emergency services, that they rely on high volumes of information. So when you have fast speeds, it's much better. Yeah. But do you think those data concerns um, are substantiated. For example, like those data concerns are reasonable, but what about those health concerns, like the, the cancer, um, the studies, or the DNA damage? So we've already established that our phones produce some kind of waves that you know, can be dangerous to our health, but that's already happening. So I don't think it's a significant concern that if we have stronger waves or whatever, like people know basic phone practices, just don't sleep with your phone in your bed. That's It's easy as that. So people still do, and people still always will. That's true, yeah. Are you speaking from experience, Pratik? <laughs> <laughs> I am not. Um, I do not sleep with my phone. It's not a teddy bear for you? <laughs> no, I have a teddy bear for that. Um, <laughs> you have Jacob for that? <laughs> I'm so glad that wasn't on the mic. <laughs> But really, personally, I'm, um, I don't necessarily buy into the 5G marketing strategies. I think it is a marketing ploy for the most part. I do think there is innovations um, for technological that is to be stated, especially with the faster internet speed. But um, I think it is being rolled out too quickly, and I don't think there is enough evidence to prove the benefits outweigh the negatives. A similar question. I'd like to address this one to Rajiv. So 5G is going to cost a lot in infrastructure, and just to construct it, do you believe that that's worth it? Well, first, I'd like to address the health concerns. I mean, okay. Rashid also brought up like how uh, how five G may be potentially harmful to our health, and that's one. Of, that's what a lot of the pundits have been saying. But one thing is that we have to realize the physics behind five G or radio waves in general. Like people associate five G with health, not like health harm, even though it's similar to other radio waves. People think about millimeter waves and say, "Oh, that's a higher frequency." It's going to be more dangerous, but that's no different from visible light or other radio waves. So I don't necessarily think there's going to be a large health impact because ultraviolet rays, what comes from the sun that can potentially cause skin cancer, that's known as ionizing radiation, and 5G is not ionizing radiation. And do you think it's similar to when people were really concerned about the phones being a really, like about cell phones being a really bad thing for health? Do you think it's a similar sort of concern that's going to turn out to be mostly unfounded? Yeah, I think it's just a lack of awareness, mostly. 
And then you brought up the second question about infrastructure costs. I think that comes down to more of like an economics point of view, like what's the benefit of the 5G infrastructure is like if companies are going to make a lot of money from it, like I know, like we've seen ads for it, like Verizon, they're implementing it and they're trying to implement it in NFL stadiums, stuff like that. I feel like if it improves the experience a whole lot more than it already is, then yeah, it could potentially be worth it. But if we don't see a lot of benefits from it, then costs may not be substantiated. And you brought up um, economics, so that reminded me of something that Ms. Meek used to say a lot. Um, <laughs> that too, but also um, opportunity costs. <laughs> yes, children of the digital age. Um, <laughs> we need to analyze the opportunity costs of um, implementing this infrastructure. Um, for example, I'm being told by the fact checkers that it takes a lot more energy um, to actually implement this new infrastructure. Um, especially into uh, third world countries where a lot of these, um, you know, large companies such as AT&T, Verizon, their main st advertising strategy is that implementing 5G will create access, um, more access for third world countries. They're using a lot of that um, in terms of emotional uh, appeal as well. I mean, just to give an audience a kind of analogy on the speeds of 5G, in MetLife Stadium in New Jersey, they actually held a contest between NFL star Sean Johnson lining up for a 40-yard dash versus a guy on his phone connected to 5G trying to download an episode of HBO's Hard Knocks series to his smartphone. <laughs> Guess who finished first? Yeah, it was the guy named Ricky who was downloading the episode on his smartphone. <laughs> that would take like minutes or even like close to like half an hour on regular speeds to download a whole episode of a show. And doing that like faster than an NFL star running a 40-yard dash, that's pretty impressive in my opinion. Well, props to Ricky. <laughs> but um, so we've heard from the ethics panel, and I want to um, ask Shabazz Can I here. Address one more thing. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> when you give internet connectivity in third world countries, you give them access to information, right? And what comes with information? Information gives you education, and a lot of those people are trapped in cycles of poverty. And how do you help them? I personally believe you have to give them education, right? And when you expand their network, give them access to the internet, they get they get more resources to learn. Like I was listening to a story, I think my dad told me about it, about this kid in Syria who used YouTube to learn English and he eventually got into college in Canada, right? Don't you want more people to have those opportunities to grow and to pull their families out of hardship? I think in theory, that sounds great. But in practice, if you actually look at these third world countries, they aren't, most of them aren't democratic. So the ones that aren't democratic, um, they are going to have some form of censorship. I mean, uh, if if you if you look at, for example, like Saudi Arabia, there are many episodes, or even like for example, um, I remember I was looking at uh, an HBO show for by John Oliver um, that criticized um, Narendra Modi, and that episode was banned in India, and that's a country that that's the world's largest democracy. So if you, I think that five G is going to create increased access, but I think it's going to be more biased access. I don't think it's going to show them necessarily the whole truth unless obviously, um, which is inevitable uh, loopholes. Isn't that better than no access? Don't you want someone who has information and education versus nothing at all, even if that information and education is a little less than what they would have in another country? Yes, I think it is, but I think, honestly, um, we should wait and just do some more research before we actually uh, start implementing it. I think at that point, a lot of the issue lies within how the country is set up, and no wireless network is going to save that. Especially if you, like, if other countries are giving money to a lot of the rulers in some of the third world countries, they're not going to put that money towards 5G. 
a lot of them will just put it in their own pocket. But don't they have an incentive to develop that internet? Because they also want to improve the standard of living in the country. Ideally. You know, there are some corrupted individuals, but you know, implemented technology is likely one of the goals. So even if they spend, you know, ten percent of the money that they get, they create internet for just ten thousand people. That's ten thousand people who could be li who are living better than they could have been before. I think that's significant. Yeah. Better hundred percent of that money went there though. That's true. Yeah. But, but zero versus get, ten thousand. Yeah. Something to think about. And um, I know Shabazz has been asking to uh, voice his opinions on this. So let's hear from the culture panel. Uh, um, I'm not Shabazz, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um, not not necessarily concerning directly 5G, but I think it's applicable um, with with the market for Wi-Fi. Uh, you brought up India. Companies like Facebook and um, Google have been pumping in low cost, cheap, or even free Wi-Fi to many of the rural areas of India uh, to open up the market. Because the more people are connected to the internet, the more people will be spending money on the internet, like making these big companies lots of money. So they view it as an investment to actually pay the infrastructure costs for now so that they can reap the long-term rewards. And I think the same might apply to uh, 5G or other like cellular internet uh, pro providers. Furthermore, internet providers aren't the same internationally. So we see it from our US perspective that basically all of our phone companies are starting to focus on 5G development and the installation of 5G around the country. But you have to realize that our phone plans here, our phones themselves, and even the cost of that infrastructure of setting up 5G is significantly lower than it is in other countries. We were actually talking about this right before we started the podcast. Um, we looked up phone plan prices for Canada, which is a very developed country, and over there, for my phone plan, I'd be paying more than $85 a month for my current phone plan, which I pay about 35 for. So that cost in and of itself is more expensive just across the northern border. If you want to install that in a third world country where people can barely afford like the cheapest of smartphones, it's going to be so high cost that the benefit wouldn't be realized until they could actually end up paying for it. And I guess the other question to that would be, if you're just trying to get Wi-Fi and access to these countries, why not put in something like 3G, something that's cheaper to set up and still reliable and providing a benefit? So I would argue that the culture for that is just non-existent. We live in a very techno-centric world, so everyone wants, a if the best thing is available, why would you settle for something that's half as good, right? And the argument for that is that China became a very developed country over time because of their technology and their emphasis on technologi technological development. And same with a country like Japan. Both of those were formerly third world countries, but because of actually the phone industry, they started getting a lot more economic benefits and they developed over time because of the internet. And um, you could also have just five, four, in those countries, um, that would solve the cultural issues um, or the kind of the stigma against 3G, and would still simultaneously be um, a lot cheaper for these third world countries. Well, I think the issue with uh, three or 4G is that if you're going to spring for um, like infrastructure for cellular providers, it makes sense. If you're going to pay the money, you might as well pay for the latest one, so you don't have to tear it up and rebuild it. You know, whenever you've got the money again, so it it, it might be cheaper to just pay for the most expensive one because you're not going to have to replace it.
So I've actually changed my opinion now. It might be, it might be better to implement 4G and 3G because one of the problems we're having is that we cycle through our phones so quickly. So those phones don't have technology, they don't have access to 5G, they don't have those capabilities. So we can put them to use by giving them in third world countries, just handing them as resources once again from the internet. They can implement old infrastructure, old technology. I don't know the um, minute details on how that implementation works, but I'm sure they can recycle some of the technology that we have here and put it in those third world countries to actually help them. That would definitely be better than when you do phone recycling typically and it just gets thrown away, but in a safe way. Yeah, exactly. And I think I'd also agree with Risha in the sense that we can probably establish that older infrastructure because as we've mentioned before, it, the economic costs are so high in implementing 5G in third world countries that if we do implement 3G or 4G first, then we're creating that foundational infrastructure that can allow the country yeah, to expand and grow a little bit. And I think expanding on some of the other benefits that everyone talked about, there are educational benefits, and obviously Pratik mentioned censorship and the limitations of what information can be around the um, like the internet that's available to these people in their world countries. But I think there's also some health benefits as well, because there becomes a lot of awareness in terms of um, sanitation, sanitary equipment, and how to really maintain health there, because currently right now in a lot of third world countries, it's very difficult for them to grasp the importance of such health benefits and um, things like that. Well, we have to consider that they won't, these third world country leaders, most of them maintain power by keeping other people in poverty. So not only will they maintain a censorship, but at the same time, they'll be pushing their own agenda and bias throughout this, with this internet. So it's not like a really good idea to provide internet to all of them, specifically because even if we try to provide internet to these people in like rural locations, it still has to go through the leader of that country. We can't simply just like set up a covert operation and put internet all over the world. Right? It's not that easy. And so like having to set up this network, we have to go through that leader. And at that point, they're not only able to censor, but also push their own like ideas and philosophies through this internet and basically create this like environment for them that is more controllable than what they already have because now they have access to people like locations and homes because of this internet access. And so now they're more of a controlled population and at the same time they can also you know, push their own beliefs and ideologies. So yeah, I think we've gone on a tangent about the implementation of 5G in third world countries, but I, I'd also like to focus on some of the cool applications of 5G because in the end that's why companies are trying to put R&D into it because otherwise no one would care. Uh, some of the cool applications I've read about is IoT, that stands for Internet of Things. So that's about the interconnected web of devices, like electronic devices that exist in cities, agriculture, various environments. It could be like your home, uh, smart homes, etc. Like another cool application is vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communication. And the reason why that's possible with 5G is because of the insane download speeds and there's low latency between these devices. Yeah, I mean, 5G is being advertised as kind of the platform for um, self-driving cars. But I, I'm hearing that Nikhil um, wants yeah. to give a quick fact update here. Fact check, something to say. Uh, I think one of the misconceptions is that 5G <coughs> is kind of just implementing a new tower that allows all of our phones to just get everything instantly. But in reality, you need stronger devices because downloading 
things that fast requires a much stronger battery. And you also need 5G capabilities in your tech, which means you need to get probably a new phone or at least buy an expensive upgrade to your current phone in order to implement this technology. So it isn't as simple as just going in and replacing a few cell phone towers. It's you buying all an entirely new system of uh, phones and devices and Internet of Things in a sense. That's just what I wanted to say. Well, that reiterates the argument of why we should recycle these technologies. If we're going to have to start with brand new phones and brand new systems, we can at least donate some of those those countries that really need them. <laughs> so we decided just because Thomas really wants to say something that we're going to do a and a about this. So, yeah. So, so yeah, basically just like going off what Mikhail said, what happens inside our phones is we have these modems, they're called modems, they're these wireless chips that interface with these network towers. And up until now, they've been 4G slash 4G LTE based. And what these companies are doing is they have to implement these 5G chips to interface with these 5G network towers. And yeah, as Richard said, before we do that, we have to wait. Uh, we have to either recycle our old phones or get our new, or, or get new phones. But one problem I see is that a lot of companies, like, instead, I, I see a problem with maintaining 4G LTE still because it's hard to, like, keep updating old hardware when new hardware is being developed. Thomas is leaving. <laughs> so, um, we are going to take Q&A now. Um, so, I, I know Thomas really wants to speak. Um, so, Rajiv, you yeah. just pass the mic over to Thomas. We had to move him back to maintain order. If he could move his chair up here, you'd all have chairs. And I would be able to get out when this is over. What? Uh, not much. I just, uh, over summer, I worked at Ericsson, which is one of the biggest 5G providers right now. And um, obviously, I think I would know more than the average consumer just because of the amount of time I spent there. And to impart my knowledge would be uh, well, part of it is that 5G, a lot of people don't actually know how the technology works. Is basically they have like these cell towers that they make, and each cell tower covers a specific range. And there's radios on these cell towers that are three, four, 5G adapted, right? And so, for the argument of building it in less developed countries, uh, is a little different because the actual the actual radio between like a three and 5G radio is not that much more expensive. So I think implementing the newest technology in like uh, lower countries or like third world countries is far more beneficial because the main cost of setting up 5G actually comes from the radio tower and not the actual radio itself. And so that is one of the biggest proponents of, of asking for 5G because it's just so much more efficient. Uh, the average movie downloads in about two minutes on 4G, but the average movie on 5G, and I've tested this personally, downloads in about two to three seconds, which is considerably faster, right? And so that type of speed and that type of access that you gain through 5G is not really accessible anywhere else. And not only that, last time a, a, a G came out was basically a decade ago, right? So they've done extensive testing on like the health benefits and developing this technology to be able to implement this into the United States, which has pretty strict laws on on uh, on the implementation of 
something that's so nationwide and worldwide. And so the idea of pushing it back further is is uh, understand it's under it's an understandable perspective, but there is a much better argument for pushing out now. And I would say the argument is actually kind of similar to that of GMOs, where there is misinformation going on both ways. But uh, and you could argue either way, but I think it's far more be beneficial to push it out right now because it would benefit almost every single person immediately, and its effects would be profoundly better. Thank you, Thomas. Um, so we would greatly, uh, we would love to talk about this topic for longer, but we really have to move on. Um, but our next topic is something that is really, um, that we're really excited to be talking about, especially since it especially is- Especially now. Yeah, it's really relevant to the election season. Um, it's our morality discussion segment, which is caucuses versus primaries. It's basically what the differences are, what the merits of each are, everything like that. But before we begin, we would like to kind of um, make a cautionary statement. This podcast um, was designed to provide an optimistic viewpoint on our problems in our societies, um, or whatever it may be. Um, <laughs> so we aren't really going to use this as a platform for um, to express a political message, yeah, but we're rather not really giving out soapboxes today. <laughs> but rather to um, talk about the institutions itself, yeah. the democratic institutions in which our nation was founded on, um, and potentially uh, a discourse, a debate about them. Yeah. Just help people better understand them, because I know before I looked this up, I had a very loose understanding of what the difference was and why one might be better. Mm -hmm, same. So um, basically, um, this whole kind of started. Uh, this whole thing kind of started with the after the Iowa caucus and um, the real catastrophe, uh, catastrophe there with the app, um, but also with articles being published asking the Democratic Party and um, even our country, even our, and our citizens ourselves. Why are we still subscribing to a outdated system such as a caucus versus a primary that is much more democratic? Yeah. And just to clarify the differences, a primary is what all you know, basically. You're just voting for these people and seeing percentages. But a caucus involves discussion to figure it out. Basically, everyone uh, organizes themselves into groups, and groups that have more than 15% of the people are considered viable. And each round, so to say, one person gets eliminated and their supporters move to other groups. Yeah, and um, it honestly uh, seems a little bit chaotic when you actually look at yeah. what's actually happening. I mean, um, I remember in fifth grade or elementary school, we had these games um, where we had to just run to each corner of the room. Um, wow. And it was really chaotic um, because you know the schools room once. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, we did. Um, <laughs> I think that was with uh, our humans irrational or something. Yeah. Um, Humanities. Which um, I, Jacob and I stood on the far left side and said that humans are irrational. I think we did say that, yeah. yeah. But um, basically, I want to talk about the cons of a caucus um, first. So, the, uh, the, first of all, the pros are that they are much cheaper and they have been in place for much longer. Um, so theoretically, there should, no be, should, there should not be any issues, but obviously that wasn't true with the app. And really theoretically, the biggest benefit of the caucus is it fosters discussion to try to help sway people to your side. It makes everybody consider different viewpoints and see who their second or third choice might be. But once again, I think the problems are with the actual implementation of it. So for example, um, Oftentimes, not everyone has a chance to actually go to a caucus because uh, you know most people are working. Okay. The timings aren't very flexible. You have to be there all day. Um, that's definitely not a practical solution for the modern day um, 
uh, modern day employee, um, whatever you may be. And really only hardcore uh, party faithfuls have the biggest stake in the uh, outcome participation. Especially if you're thinking about it and you kind of like one person, but everybody else is sort of all right for you, you're not going to spend time all day at a caucus because you're going to get torn apart by people asking you, go to this corner, go to this corner, you know? Yeah, and um, after, you know, your candidate is deemed either, um, let's say your candidate is deemed not viable, then every single other party just jumps at you and tries to get your votes. So, and when you, you don't really want to decide your vote when you're being pressurized by all these different campaigns. You want to sit down and make an educational choice. And personally, that's my opinion. It's why I think uh, a caucus is very outdated. But I do want to hear once again from the ethics panel first um, and really hear your opinions about it and whether you guys see any merits of still keeping the caucus system. <laughs> okay, so I'm kind of unclear on how this how caucuses work, or which one of them was like where you raised your hand, right? So the caucuses are where you divide up into different groups based on who you like. So what are the pros of that? Like I don't understand why well, it's, it's like beneficial. A primary is simply where you're filling out a ballot, sort of thing. But the fact check has something. Okay, so basically what a caucus is, is you have different groups of people, everyone gets in line, goes into like say a gym or something, and uh, Buttigieg supporters go here, other supporters go there, and they form different groups, right? And if one of the groups is less than 50% of the population there, it varies depending on which caucus you're talking about, it's no longer deemed viable, and those groups that were in that, uh, those people that were in that group have to migrate to a different group, or they can leave. So that's the basic premise of a caucus system. So one of the important things I think about voting is that sometimes, even if you vote for someone who doesn't have a chance, you're still putting your say in the country. And I don't think it's fair if someone switches between their primary candidate to someone else in the caucus voting system. I think voting for someone who doesn't have a chance is your way of saying that you don't have faith in the two primary candidates that might be running for them. I'd say similarly, a primary can give you a sense of anonymity, so there's less of a peer pressure affecting your decision. It's more your decision you make in private rather than what they're convincing you of. But Richard, on that note, I would like to ask you the question. Um, for example, in the 2016 election, we had some kind of criticism for our voters who did not vote for the two main candidates right. because it ruined the chances of, e of either one of them getting elected. Do you think that uh, you should still vote for whoever you uh, prefer, or do you think you should also consider the viability of them getting actually elected? Yeah. It's like, really, should you vote for who you like the most, or who is the least bad for you who has a chance of winning? <laughs> <laughs> so I think, in most cases, you should vote for the person you truly have faith for. But if you sense that, based on the two primary candidates, that the country is really going in the wrong direction, then yes, you can pick the lesser of two evils. <laughs> okay, um, I'm just going to answer the, the caucus question. So the I think there's two primary issues with caucuses. One of them is that um, like the people in your... So in an actual caucus, you're like put in a corner with people in your group. And I think we've seen this in Humanities when we did the... Um, the four corners, is a lot can depend on who's in your group in that room. Like, if I have Shabazz on my team, 
maybe a lot of people are going to come to my side because Shabazz is an excellent speaker. Or maybe a lot of people don't like Shabazz, so they're going to go <laughs> to the other side of the room just because of him and like the way he speaks. Um, but like the, the primary should be about the candidates and not their supporters. So who's in your room could, could sway the election. Uh, the other thing is that um, with, with, the, uh, with the primary, I understand the argument that you can have, um, it makes, it, it gives you a chance to vote for um, like your second or third choice. But you could do that in a, in a uh, it, I'm sorry, in a caucus, it gives you a chance to vote for your second or third choice. But you can do that in primary with a ranked voting system. Um, and like, uh, like Rashid said, it, um, it really negatively impacts small candidates. Like if I wanted to vote for Hamza for uh, president, but Hamza only had like 3% of the vote, in a caucus system, there wouldn't even be a corner for Hamza, right? Because he doesn't have enough support. Um, so, and there's, that really marginalizes um, small candidates, especially in a field like this year, where you have a lot of candidates, so not a lot of candidates meet the threshold. Maybe you would ha even have a majority of people who didn't support one of the two leading candidates, but just because none of them met the 15% threshold or whatever, they wouldn't be able to, to make their uh, voices heard. So I think the primary is like a simpler, a more democratic, uh, more even transparent system. Yeah, and another thing is, okay, well, I don't, you, I don't really follow politics like that much, but like um, when we learned about caucuses in um, Gov, like um, what I gained from like the whole system was that it's like pretty time consuming because it takes like hours to like meet and discuss and like talk and like actually participate in the caucus. And a simple vote can be done like within like you know a couple hours. So I don't know. That's also something to think about. <laughs> um, I think also in addition to that, a lot of people who we want to go out to the caucuses and actually vote are people who work nine to five jobs. And that's a little shout out to Mr. Sklar who went and taught us that a little bit more, um, that people who work nine to five jobs, they really can't take out of time because they work like hourly paychecks. And it becomes difficult to really implement caucuses in the sense that it should be the primary method of choosing um, candidates. And actually, um, mainly five states practice the method of caucuses. So Iowa, Nevada, North Dakota, Wyoming, and Kentucky. And Kentucky is actually only a Republican caucus. And so, that also provides some sense of limitations of actually implementing a caucus. And I think in terms of the voter turnout, I think a primary will allow more people to come in and actually have a say, rather than having some sort of bias, as Nikolai was saying, about these supporters and people who are maybe swaying other people's opinions as well. So what I would say to all of this about how we could abridge or even get rid of caucuses altogether we as Americans have very, 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 very high nationalism. And we like to remember our history and where we came from. And the caucus system would take away a sort of integral part of our American identity because of the fact that it's been used for so long. The tradition of it is very important to the entire election process. And to get rid of it so easily is something that a lot of very pro-American people will take personal offense to. I don't understand why. Because... <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Hello. Okay, there we go. So I don't, I don't think that's a valid argument because obviously we have a lot of dirty things in our history. And second, is representing the whole population more important? Because going off what they said, right? This takes a whole day. A lot of people work nine to five jobs, and that creates a gender discrepancy too. Some people who are older who are not working jobs, they might be the ones who go out to vote, while everyone else who's working a job just has to stay at their job. Um, uh, one more thing is that, like, I don't know, fact checkers. Um, can you look this up, please? But I don't think, besides Iowa, um, I think a lot of states recently added the caucuses and then took them away. I think we're down from uh, like 13 caucuses to just five this year. Um, I saw that when I was watching the debates. But the caucus really has been a sort of state-by-state -state experiment that they've tried. And it's not like a, a national tradition the same way that you... Yeah, um, I actually agree with that. Um, and I agree with what Richard is saying, but we have a question from the audience. Um, a question from uh, Sachin, who is a volunteer for a Texas House candidate. Um, and he says that as most of a primary ballot is state level, how do caucuses deal with state level con uh, contents? <laughs> That's a good question for the fact checkers. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So while we're dealing with that. Caucuses are held for presidential candidates. Usually caucuses are held for uh, presidential candidates. The caucus, caucuses aren't really a good way of electing those state officials that are applied per district or county. But it's not a, overall, caucuses aren't used for uh, lower level state elections. It's only used for national elections where it's a big deal and people need to take out, there's a, there's a need scene for people to take out their time. Yeah, um, and I think one thing that we really need to think about is what matters to us in a democratic system. So it is different for all of us, I'm, I'm, as we've learned through this um, panel here. We have disagreements, but I think that's really what's important about the dem uh, democratic system here. Um, so for example, if you look at a, a caucus or a primary, both of them in their institutions have like good intentions or um, it's really more about how can they be implemented in my opinion. I think that goes back to really everything we've talked about today. It's not necessarily about whether the concepts are good, it's more about how can they be implemented and whether they are practical in today's society. I think again, as deep as this topic is, this could go on for longer than this whole podcast will be. <laughs> but we're gonna move on to our second topic, or yeah, our next topic, which is how to embrace new culture while appreciating old culture. And this is especially relevant in fields such as music and sports, where there's constant evolution. But similarly, artists continue to have people who influence them, who they'll either mention in songs or take different things from. And obviously, this wouldn't be in a good way podcast if I didn't mention um, Kanye West. <laughs> so um, the reason I mention him is because Kanye West is one of the few artists who has innovated. Um, so, for example, if you look at the start of his career, he started off as a musician who didn't, who was really just more focused on rapping. He wasn't singing at all. But then he had 808s and Heartbreak, where he, you know, used auto tune a lot. Um, then he had Ye, where he talked about more mental health issues. He talks about different things in his music, and I think that is something that a lot of artists haven't been able to do. But I think it's also more. It says more about really what they want to, um, or what their dedications are, or what their purposes are as the artists. Yeah. I think directly relating to this um, 
preservation of past music, Kanye chooses to sample old music a lot, such as Nina Simone's Blood on the Leaves, or Nina Simone's Strange Fruit in the song Blood on the Leaves, uh, Shaka Khan's Through the Fire, Through the Wire. And similarly, um, there's just so much things like that. Like he even goes to prog rock such as King Crimson and songs such as Power. I think that's a really great example. But even if you're not going that far, there are musicians like Elliot Smith, who was big in the 90s, who had a lot of Beatles influences in his music, despite it having a really depressing tone comparatively. And you have artists who are willing to change genres. Um, I think one of the ones that is pretty famous in today's um, world is Little Mouse no X. He really brought together um, country music, rap, um, and kind of combine those cultures. And I think that was something that is really indicative of of today's uh, really culture and how we view music. Well, we like, aren't really by, by one specific genre. Even like Post Malone. You, you can't really yeah. call Hollywood's Bleeding a pure rap album. Yeah, but at the same time... But you can't got, call it anything else either. Yeah. So really the question goes down to, is it fair to put labels on these yeah. albums or creations? So let's bring that to our culture panel. So artistic intent is something that I probably value the most when I listen to a new album or even a new song by anybody. You can kind of tell just by the vibe of it if it's sort of a cash grab or to generate hype or if it's something the artist really took their time and put effort into to release. And I don't see any kind of hype building singles from people that or from artists that essentially run music right now and just some examples of that would be Drake. Drake puts out a few singles before every album, and each one end up being very high quality. They are mainstream because it does generate a little bit of hype, but he doesn't cop out in the sense that he's not just making a song to make a song and generate hype. He's making a song because he loves to make songs. He's also another artist that takes a lot a lot of uh, influence from other people. He's sort of a genreless artist, and you could some people argue he's the greatest artist of all time because of his creativity. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put that argument out there. I wouldn't put that argument out there. But some people do argue it. Um, my opinion is Kanye. Obviously, I was going to say you know that's Pratik's opinion too. Uh, yeah, you see, yeah. I don't agree with Pratik. Um, Kanye's Kanye's Jesus is King was probably the most uh, genreless album I've ever heard in my entire life. Although it was uh, modeled after gospel music, it and it did contain a lot of gospel elements. It was essentially an R and B album. Which I think con- is just ridiculous. Yeah, even in the context of rap, too, it's just all that together. Absolutely. While still being a spiritual album. Well, I think saying that an artist is the best artist of all time doesn't really make sense. Yeah, you can base it off of listens. And another thing I like to address is that just because, like, a, am not trying to, like, diss anybody here, but just because an artist makes a song for hype doesn't mean they don't put their work into it. Because yeah. when you make that song for hype, you push that song as much as you can. I mean, there's marketing involved. There's so much involved. Like, I just want to call it, like, Shaq West and Mud Boy was a terrible album, just in general, right? But that one song, Mo Bamba, that everyone loved, he pushed that so much. He knew that was the gem. He knew that was the one that was going to succeed. So he pushed that as much as he could because he knew that that was the one. I say similarly, there's a song called Sexy and I Know It by... The band that did that, they actually were skilled musicians who had been backing to Bob Dylan and some other people at one point. But they put their full effort in to make 
one of the stupidest songs ever that still gets play. Hey, hey, they also made party rock anthems, so they weren't one-hit wonders. True, true. Okay? Kept going. Yeah. I think really, I don't think you can say there's a greatest artist ever. I mean, the one that people cite the most is the Beatles. But if you look at their earlier stuff, most of that stuff is incredibly simple. Like, I want to hold your hand. Some of it you couldn't even play now because it in the context of today. Um, like, I think I saw her standing there as one of them that has... Just the intro sounds a little creepy now. <laughs> but I think it really boils down to personal preferences and who you listen to, who's the best for you. Well, I mean, uh, yeah, obviously, there, there's no song that's inherently good. You know, Every song that people define as good is because they simply assign some kind of personal value to it in some sense or another. There's no song that's inherently made as a good song, you know. Every artist puts it out because they think it's good or they think it's like a meme or they, they want something out of it. You don't put a song out for no reason. So, um, Hannah, uh, <laughs> 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 we can cut it, we can cut it. <laughs> That's my button for you. Um, so I want to kind of bring in a question here. Do you think artists, um, for example, like especially in recent times, there have been artists who just popped out of the middle of nowhere, for example, like Little Pump. Um, but there have been artists who have been... <laughs> so Lil Pump actually had a great cult following. Oh. Lil Pump had a great cult following uh, on SoundCloud. Uh, him and Skeet Boss would know. <laughs> yeah, I was actually a big fan of his earlier work. That's true. Once he hit the mainstream is when he uh, achieved more fame. I guess you could call it. It was more infamy and notoriety than anything. Uh, but another guy that came up with him is Ski Mask the Slump God, who has sold out three straight U.S. tours and is doing very well for himself. So to say guys kind of come out of nowhere isn't the most accurate statement because they have following, which is how they get big. If you want to think of people who come out of nowhere, you really have to track their background and see what songs they were possibly featured on or what other artists they've worked with in the past because that's usually what gave them rise. Track Shabazz's background now, folks. <laughs> we can cut that. Finish <laughs> <laughs> the question. <laughs> yeah. So um, the main the main artist I was kind of alluding to was Russ. Um, basically, uh, Russ. Um, <laughs> so basically, what do you think? Um, really, how, how do you think you should embrace new culture while also appreciating old culture? Um, Forget Russ. Yes, forget Russ. We'll, we'll pick, let's say Billie Eilish, because that's someone you'll at least yes. know the name of. <laughs> Pratik's really been trying to make this difficult for you. Also, really, I guess, what's your... Okay, the problem with, like, all, I just want to, just not Billie Eilish in general, but we always... We always like refer back to the old songs, but like Ariana Grande's like Seven Rings. It goes back to my favorite, my fa that's an old song. My favorite things. And it's like we always elaborate. We always go back to that. I feel like currently now I, we've run out of not run out of things, but we've done so many trends already that we have to go back to the old stuff and just return to it. I think Ariana Grande does a really good job of doing it. She adds her own flair to it. She like she adds rap into it, which wasn't originally featured in it. I think it's a good thing to mesh the two. And Would you say that relates similarly to like movie remix? Oh, with movie re remixes, the problem is that like we overdo things to the fact where we do sequels and uh, 
trilogies where they aren't even good at that point, where we're just like reusing the same plot. And I, I know that there's the lack of, not lack of creativity, but like, we run, again, we run out of things to do, but we should, um, we should try harder, I guess, in a way. I think I think with uh with with music and with movie remakes and all that stuff, people do what there's a market for. So if people are gonna go see Jaws nineteen, even though the shark still doesn't look real, um, <laughs> then then they're gonna make Jaws nineteen. Yeah. So if there's you a market, see Jaws nineteen. <laughs> well, I'm not Marty McFly, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, of course. Um, but artists artists like everybody else are out there for uh, in, in this economy are out there for self interest. So even even like what Shabazz was talking about earlier with uh, with hype albums and stuff like that, they do that because they know they have to in order to sell records. So um, welcome. Um, so the culture has actually sort of evolved into one where these sequels and trilogies are now just being teased. Uh, what you can think of in music is there's a lot of albums that uh, collab albums between two major artists that everyone wants to see a sequel done for and essentially a part two. And the artist, yeah, exactly, Watch the Throne was a great Kanye and Jay-Z collab that everyone's expecting a part two from and one that we'll honestly never get because yeah. <laughs> and every time someone seems to see Kanye and Jay-Z standing within 10 feet of each other, they automatically assume that Watch the Throne part two is coming out. And once again, it generates hype for the artist, which leads to streams and leads to money in their pockets. Yeah, I agree there's always disappointment with like the second or a remake or a part two of it. I just want to go back to the hype songs. Like I understand that they put a lot of work into it. The problem I find with it is like there are people who are putting their emotion and they've gone through hardship in order to like make these songs and it's not like they don't receive as much hype because other people are just targeting certain a certain demographic. Uh, <laughs> I'd like to actually ask you and Madison your opinion on songs that get famous on TikTok. Honestly, can I just say TikTok has widened my of uh, like how many songs I know, and I appreciate all of them. Like I only know like a, a single verse of some of them, but that's all it's that matters. Only like six, ten seconds max, and then these songs. Well, like if you okay, so I um babysit this kid every Wednesdays. Her name's Amelia. She's like ten, and um she she knows every single TikTok dance, and she makes me learn them with her. And so when I pick her up um, from school, I usually play today's top hits. And she knows every single song on today's top hits, which is like the top 50 in our um, in America. And it's crazy because each of these songs are from TikTok and they get famous because like people like pull like 10 seconds of the chorus and then all of a sudden everyone's streaming this song and like these small artists are becoming huge. So I don't know, it's kind of crazy to think about. But should you really be letting a ten-year-old listen to this, some of the songs? <laughs> some of these songs are madly inappropriate. Like I would not have been able to listen to half of these songs at their age. And I think it's hilarious that kids are listening to Roddy Rich in the box because they don't know what it's about. And the second true. they find out what the, what it's about, they're gonna think about they're gonna think about when they're ten years old singing the song. I think it's like, I mean, it's <laughs> so. I mean, obviously, I'm not her parent, so I'm not gonna like try to, you know, constrain how much she uses TikTok and that's turned into like the ethic middle <laughs> real. <laughs> um, but like, I think that um, you're right. There should be some sort of censorship over the app, and I do think it's kind of concerning because they don't actually know like what they're actually listening to and what it all means, and 
Yeah, it well, is pretty concerning. For well, I think I think this isn't just like a modern problem though. Like I'm sure Jacob can come up with dozens of examples, or maybe our fact checkers of um, you know, the old the old songs weren't that uh, weren't that clean <laughs> on the inside either. So oh, oh yeah, I would say. Uh, I used to really only listen to older music. I right. barred myself from anything after 2000 until Pure. I was like uh, eight or something. But they didn't mark that stuff explicit. They don't even do that now on Spotify. There are songs I listen to that have some pretty bad words. There's a whole Marvin Gaye album. What's anything going by on? Marvin That's all. <laughs> anything by Marvin The only Gaye. topic on that album is sex, and I'm pretty sure it's not marked explicit. Of course. So uh, I think I think the issue, and this is honestly like something with the culture, like. Even, even you know, relating back to the interwar period of the 1920s, right? You have the shift in in the culture from the old like puritanical America to the new sort of city urbanite culture, and that like really exposes um, a lot of people to stuff that they weren't before. And I don't think that's gone away. I don't think we have a new culture since that shift. So I have a tangent here. Uh, I don't know much about TikTok, but like you said, <laughs> there's some like short clips and those songs become super famous. Do you think it's fair that just some lucky artist gets their song played by some famous TikTok person and all of a sudden they're on Billboard 100, even if their content isn't that good? Do you think that's fair? I don't know. It just depends. I don't think that one little bit should get you on Billboard 100. <laughs> Build 200, whatever but number it is. If but. you think about brands, that's like how brand and marketing works. You get yeah. one famous person to do something, and all of a sudden, whatever product they're wearing, whatever song that they're singing, is so much more famous. It has so much more reputation. I'd say just the same, whole. Th- at the same time, though, music is a democracy. There can be so many people who put in more effort into their music that don't get recognition. I mean, same with art. There are so many artists who we respect now, who we see in museums who were laughed at in their time, like Paul Cezanne, he couldn't sell anything when he was alive, and he got rejected from the French salon every time. Like, they didn't even really look at it by then, they just wrote a little R on the back. Right. But now it's someone we look at, so I think it just depends on how people perceive things. You said it was luck, but like TikTok songs, they're, they're, you have to make the audio for it. And the thing is that person is all, should, should be a fan of that song. And it's like it's the same thing as like telling your friend, oh, you should listen to this, except you're doing it on social media. It's not really luck. It's like that person already has a fan base, which is why they're just winding it and sharing it to the world. And it's like, I guess if you're lucky that one person is a TikTok famous person, but like at the same time, it's not... Yeah, and also, like, uh, for those who aren't aware, TikTok really isn't, like, a top-down. Like, almost on YouTube, if you had a big channel, like, they could promote something. Uh, that's that's not really how it works on TikTok. Uh, but also, uh, as much as we would all love to have, you know, Jacob on the Central Music Committee dictating everyone's playlists, um, that's, that's not really how it works. So if, if you have a song that gets a lot of streams, that means that people actually like listening to the song. Like, I'm not going to listen to a song yeah, that I don't enjoy. So... Uh, the sort of democratic nature of what what gets on the Billboard Top 100 is like you're not you're not going to listen to the Top 100 if you don't like the Top 100 yeah. songs, and you're just going to hit skip. That's so, about what I was saying too. It's yeah. really just what people like. Like I don't listen to much of the Billboard Top 100. Yeah, I, I'm I mean, not one of them who contributes. If, if, if people but, hear your song through yeah. like TikTok or some other means, um, and they like it and they stream it, like. At the end of the day, that's their choice to do. Well, with streaming and SoundCloud is so much easier now. You don't have to go press a record or get in a studio. A really interesting example I saw was Billie Eilish records everything in her bedroom, basically. And she doesn't even have to go to the studio. All the production's done at home. 
and that really democratizes music. Especially when Spotify used to let you just upload your stuff direct. I mean, they got rid of that now, but that made it so much easier for people to publish. Well, and here's the thing. We're kind of assuming that like these artists get like, oh, lucky in the way that they're doing things. But actually, these artists really put in the work. And for some of these TikTok songs, like they weren't even big songs before. And now TikTok has set, shed some light on these new artists. They're now able to like spread their message and spread their songs even wider. And yeah, sure, you could say that the bigger getting bigger, but you could also say that the smaller getting bigger. And artists like specifically, I want to call it like Don Tolliver. He made this song called No Idea, and it it was a little bit like not crazy big originally, but when it got on TikTok, it was huge. Like, and then people started recognizing Don Tolliver from Can't Save by Travis Scott, and he just blew up like just like that. And then I think he's in the Jambalaya cast now, so he's like also he's he's in a really big concert, like a really big event. So. At the time, we can't really say that these artists get lucky because these artists, they work hard. They work hard to get with that. Some people don't, but a lot of them really do because a lot of the game, especially when you're an artist, a, a director, a filmmaker, it's you have to have make something click with somebody in order for this thing to work. I would say it's a counterpoint. As a counterpoint, there are different types of artists that all do different things, and it really depends on how people perceive it. An example would be a song like Smells Like Teen Spirit that was written by Kurt Cobain. That's a really big song, but not much thought went into any of his music at all. Most of it he wrote at the studio right before doing it. The name smells like Teen Spirit, although it sounds like a deep thing, is really just about a brand of deodorant mm -hmm. and yeah. some graffiti he saw at one point. <laughs> so I think at the same time, a counterpoint, I guess, to bring back Pratik's favorite, Kanye West tweaks things past when they're released. I read that in, like I think, 2018, he was still uh, tweaking Life of Pablo, which came out in 2016. And he has a lack of satisfaction with what he does that makes him keep making it better, in his opinion. And I think either method works. It just depends on what the public likes. Uh, just some um, clarification on the TikTok algorithm. Well, how it works when you first start out on the app is it gives you a variety of videos. And depending on the ones you like or comment or favorite on, that type of video gets shown to you more. Uh, what do you guys want to do with that information? up to you but uh, I'm not really on the opinion panel so I just wanted to let you know that it's sort of an echo chamber in a sense but at, at the beginning there are and throughout sometimes too it will sprinkle in uh, videos with like 20 10 zero likes that you're doing while also giving you those ones with millions of likes also so I would say all of muted this mic I would say all of music's pretty much like that I mean, I talk to Shabazz about music because I generally like similar music. I don't normally talk to people about music if I know I don't like any of the same stuff as them. Because then there's really, I mean, I can get recommendations, but there's no utility to me or them of talking about it. So I guess what we're saying is that there's two sides to this. One of them is that it's a voice for young artists who don't have that much publicity to gain an audience, gain some traction. But I still think to some extent, uh, a lot of like our culture these days is that if someone wears a brand, this could be like for an artist too, then all of a sudden that brand gains a following, even if the even if it's not really worth that much. For example, in my opinion, I I don't understand why Supreme is so famous. <laughs> it's just <laughs> a regular clothing brand. So in that same sense, for some people, the internet gives a voice, and at the same time, some of these like mediums just promote the same artists who get lucky and who can probably pay a TikTok artist at 
I guess a really good example of that would be like the rise of Virgil Abloh. Even though some of his stuff goes into high fashion, a lot of it was originally just designs on cheap t-shirts. And once you add that design, a simple $5 t-shirt goes up to about $80. Yeah, it's the logo. And in part, that was from his work with Kanye West that got him to that point. I mean, it's to the point where he had a actually really good exhibit at the Atlanta High Art Museum last time I was there. And I think um, before I give it to Shabazz, um, one important po uh, point I want to make is, in even in TikTok, um, in these platforms, a lot of things that are important is really there is an algorithm for these uh, that uh, these teams of these artists uh, take advantage of and steady. So there is a lot of work that goes behind even promoting a single song um, that is not uh, available or known to the art uh, to the audience. Just a side note on Virgil, the man went from a struggling designer and nightclub DJ to meeting Kanye West randomly in LA to working on his album to becoming a designer and now he operates as the head of men's fashion at Louis Vuitton which is oh, yeah. one of the largest couture brands in the world so definitely his rise is unprecedented but on with your comments on Supreme a lot of people don't understand I sell Supreme I still don't understand what the hype <laughs> is about and the thing is it's just the culture it's the brand it's the idea of streetwear and it's just something that's permeated through our cult culture because of the people that we look up to. Yeah, I would say, honestly, that's the same thing with records, which I collect and try to resell every once in a while. You can have the same album, it's the same music, same cover, but the color of the record is different. And that can be the difference between a large amount of money. Uh, like, one of the ones I have is pretty much the same version. It's like Eminem's Kamikaze, but it glows in the dark. And that brings it from like a $20 album to like $300. I think uh, this this whole idea about like the branding being more important than the clothing itself, I actually really appreciate it because I think you could wear a trash bag and put Gucci on it and legitimately be a fashion icon. Once see you do that, obviously. I actually will. And I actually have. And I'm pretty sure I will. Paris 2019. <laughs> Monday. There Monday. it is. Fashion Week So if, you, if you're able to look at these, these business companies, they create these brands. They create products around it. At this point, the brand itself has become more expensive than the product. And that is... The definition of profit, man. You were you were making stuff for like two dollars and selling it for like a hundred to hundred ninety. Like that that is the the margin for profits there is insane. I don't necessarily know about two dollars. I, I, I wrote my I wrote I actually wrote my EE about a uh, couture pricing and uh, specifically handbags because I had no idea what made certain purses so expensive, and it's all about craftsmanship and again it's the idea of artistic intent. So the value, like he said, is the brand, but it's also what the meaning behind the brand is. The couture brands, you expect to be handmade by some Italian artisan in the middle of it, the Italian hills with leather that they get from a farm. Um, you don't necessarily know it's, if that's true, but that's what they say and you believe it. And you inherently associate value with that perception of quality and that perception of utility, which then drives up the price. As for aftermarket prices, with things like shoes and the resale value of streetwear, again, of course, it's the hype, like who's modeling it, who's wearing it, but it's also the idea that it's something that people like you, like Blue Collar, have made, so you want to support them, and you want to wear something that reps what you believe in, rather than something that represents Gucci or Louis Vuitton and more highbrow style. I agree that I... I agree that I like the culture behind it and the idea, but the problem is like whenever when these people 
can these brands do get like more their name out there? Like sometimes some some of them compromise like the quality of the actual like fabric themselves or like the shoes, and that's when it becomes a problem when they're cheating their customers by like uh like going off of their like they're they're using their like hype in order like get, they're taking advantage of people. I think we'd like to move into the Q&A section of today. Sorry, Aubrey, you look really sad. You should laugh again. Uh, but really, for, Teague and I, for the first part, it's just going to be for Teague and I answering questions, and then it's going to be questions for the panel. Argo? Oh, I see. Anna was talking about like how... Oh, my God. Oh. Wait, uh, wait to talk. We'll give you a mic. So Anna was talking earlier about, like, I think it was people trying to exploit the consumers a little um, by selling fake uh, products. So like when I was in ninth grade, I wore fake Yeezys. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I got like a lot of popularity from that. But like I shouldn't have found that. So what do you guys think about fake Yeezys? Do you? I think AirPods. I think AirPods. I love fake Yeezys. What are your thoughts on fake Yeezys, Rudy? I think really one of the big things that the Yeezy brand's doing right now that makes them easier to support is that they're moving production to the US to create jobs, which I think can be really important. Although they are really expensive. What are your thoughts, Pratik? Yeah, I'll give it to your advice. I don't know. Personally, I'm very um, uh, kind of picky about like what shoes I wear or everything like that. Um, so no, I don't really buy into any of the hype of like these kind of brands. Um, so uh, that's just my personal opinion. I don't really like to buy, um, like for example, I, I think quality, like for example, like with Nike, right? At least some of their products do have quality, but if we're Yeezys, um, I think they are overpriced to an extent. And I get that they do um, carry a brand value or a meaning, but personally that just doesn't appeal to me. So there's an obvious misconception just here that Yeezys are inherently expensive because they aren't. They are the same price as a lot of Nike's shoes and normal Adidas shoes as well, they retail for $220. What gives them value is not Kanye West necessarily endorsing the brand, but it's actually the artificially low supply that's announced with the, each drop. So it's a feeling of, it's actually a fear of missing out for fans of not only Kanye West, but of sneakerheads, or as my parents like to call me, a psychopath. Because <laughs> uh, I, I own, I proudly own three pairs and I paid I paid a decent amount of money for them um, and I think they're they carry a lot of worth to me because of personal value because I'm a huge supporter of Kanye West and I love his music and I definitely want to represent him but at the same time the idea that they're all very expensive and overpriced is not something you should have because now what we've seen recently is that everyone gets the easy there's a drop at least once or twice a month for the same price and in quantities that we've basically unheard of. And it's actually tanking the sneaker market right now. So Kanye is doing his best to get Adidas to release more of his shoes so that everyone can get it easy. These questions could be about anything, but we really probably want to do one question per person just to move through everybody. And you can ask it, I guess, to anybody here on the panel. Address it to them or so, generally. So it's not just to you two? Yeah, we'll, we'll broaden it. Okay, so my question is for the discussion you guys had earlier. So since you guys were talking about quality earlier, I have a question. Uh, what do you guys? What is your opinion over production? Do you think like there has to be a high production in order to have good quality, or do you think production doesn't necessarily matter? So like going off to the topic of like rap, I have to mention this artist because I really like him. 
But like Kendrick Lamar has like a really good like production like value, and he's like known for that. But like there are people who start off at like SoundCloud who have like really uh, really good music, and it doesn't necessarily have to like be based off from production. So what's your opinion on like production on quality? So production of music or like just how, in, like just how, in general, actual like, production of a song how or how it, many you're making? How do you think it affects quality? Do you think it does? Or I do think, you think it, quality is measured. Like the true measure of quality is one that's maintained over a large portion of things. Because there are people who can do one thing great, and then they keep going, and everything else is terrible, and you wish they just stopped. And I think the same thing is true with products. I think a lot of the best products are produced in small quantities because they take time to make. A lot of the more artisanal things, but at the same time, you can mass produce at good quality if you put in the right uh, product. Yeah, the right uh, things into it. It just depends on the situation. But musically, I would say the way you measure quality of a musician is how much of their stuff is good. Especially like if you take it down to the album level. If you listen to an album and there's really only one song you're a big fan of, then that's not a good album. You may have a good song, but it's not a good album. If you listen to it and every song is great, or say seventy percent of the songs are great, that's then it qualifies as a good album, I think. We're breaking it down to percentages. Uh, I wanted to ask this question to Jacob, and any of you guys can, uh, I guess, add on. So I really wanted to, I guess, bring it back to the whole music thing, because you know, we, you guys were talking a lot about uh, how different people keep on adding their own twists to different ideas. And so I basically wanted to talk about the theme of originality, um, you know, I kind of wanted to bring up something that me and Jacob actually have in common. We both play the guitar, and uh, a lot of songs that are played on the guitar follow a very, uh, a very basic and uh, popular chord structure. And many different songs just generally have very, um, very, I guess, recognizable, um, recognizable, um, like chord and just song structure overall. So my main question is: Do you guys really think that there's like originality in the music? I mean, in the music world right now. I think pretty much ultimately everything's first chorus first. There's really no originality in music is how you synthesize past things. Because you're never gonna, even if I'm put in isolation and I come up with something, it's definitely gonna have something in common with some other song. It's gonna remind someone of something, and it's ultimately how you combine the things you know to create something new that makes something original. On top of reminding someone of something they've heard of, your creation is based off of things that you've heard. It's something that you enjoyed listening to and something that really stuck in your head. I know personally from like playing piano and things like that, I would just be messing around and I would think that something sounds nice. And my sister would walk in from the next room and say, hey, that reminds me of this song. Are you trying to play that? And I, I'd say no, but obviously inherently I'd heard it before. It sounded nice, so I played it. Yeah, and for the sake of time, we're gonna do one last question. Yeah, just for the sake of time and our viewers at home will listen to this. <laughs> um, you guys were talking about the music industry earlier, and I was wondering on what your opinion is on people like buying their way into the music industry. Examples being like Taylor Swift or Ariana Grande, whose parents were really rich before they even got into music. Like I know Taylor Swift's dad bought her a label before she was even big, or at least part of it, enough to be a part of the board and become that. 
So I was just wondering what your thoughts were on this and if you thought it's like hindering the up upcoming new talent that maybe don't have that those sort of funds to kind of get into that industry. Listen, uh, it brings back to what I said earlier. Um, like even though Taylor Swift's dad bought her her record, like I still shake it off. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, so like if if Taylor Swift, because uh, didn't uh, what's the name? What's her, Rebecca Black, who came out with Friday. Yeah. Like Friday, she she bought that song. Her parents paid for that song, but nobody's listened to a Rebecca Black album since, right? So if you're not making good music, people just aren't gonna listen to it, no matter how much money you have. So even though Taylor Swift and Miley Cyrus and all these people had that leg into the industry, they had to put in like the talent and the work to create albums that people listen to. So I, I don't think it's a problem. First off, you chose like two of the most recognizable artists in the world <laughs> <laughs> to say that. They bought their way into the industry. Maybe they. Oh, is this slow? No, it's just no, it's good. All right. So maybe they bought their way in, but they had the talent to stay in the game. And like the point he brought up, and Taylor Swift and what's it called Ariana Grande has like Ariana Grande has like one of the largest vocal registers I've ever heard. Like she can go really, really high with her voice, and she is extremely talented and absolutely deserves everything she has. And at the same time, she's not spreading a bad message. She's also spreading a good message. When she talks outside, maybe not in her songs. Same thing with, maybe same thing with Taylor Swift, actually. Um, yeah, don't kill your exes, please. <laughs> so um, basically, the point I'm trying to make here is that maybe they bought their way into the industry, but they're actually fantastic artists that create these recognizable themes and universal themes that are easily accepted and understood by people all around the world. Yeah. And one of the things I always like that could relate to this question is when musicians I enjoy have kids who also make great music. I think that leg in a door definitely helps them, but they make it because of their good music. I mean, an example would be Bob Dylan's son, Jacob Dylan, was in a band called The Wallflowers, and the majority of people probably wouldn't necessarily see his name on their albums, but they did great because of simply how he was raised and the music he grew up with. Another example would be John Lennon's son, Sean, who makes basically prog rock. It's like a John Lennon song for Pink Floyd. So... <laughs> You can get really cool things like that. And I, I agree with what Nikolai was saying. Ultimately, you're not going to do well in the music industry if you're not actually good. And with that note, um, I think we're going to end it because we do have food waiting here. Um, and I know everyone has um, plans after. And that food is not for people who are just listening to this online. You, the food's not going to appear in front of you. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you guys so much for coming. Um, and uh, with that, though, we would like to say uh, thank you and bye.